This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. And joining us for the first time, I'm so excited because I've been wanting to have this woman on. She's a powerhouse. She is a professor, of course. Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. Let me welcome Dr. Imani Perry. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming through. So I, I'm glad you're here. I posed the question before you got here uh, because there's so many people resistant to taking this vaccine, uh, which now Pfizer and Moderna are, are rolling out. Europe became, uh, Great Britain became the first Western country to, or uh, entity to, uh, take you know have the vaccine spread uh, i think the first person to take it was a, a elderly woman i think she was 90 something years old was first person injected with it uh we had last week a doctor dr chris t pernell who was actually in the moderna trial and she allayed a lot of my anxiety and fears around it now, i'm open to it now when before i was like tuskegee and radiation they've been experimenting on us and not treating us why do we think blah 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 and then she was like nope this 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 and this and i was like all right that makes sense okay i'm good so I was saying to myself today, what if the whole resistance to this is baked into the rollout of this? And then I was also thinking about the notion that countries sat around, and I, I think about this to this day, you know, in a room, you know, Great Britain was like, all right, we're going to take Nigeria and Ghana. France was like, I, I, I want the Ivory Coast and B- Benin. Um, hold on. Uh, the Dutch... It's like, wait a minute, uh, let me get South Africa. Leopold was like, let me get that Congo. And they divvied up an entire continent. And the black people there didn't know what was happening. <laughs> Folks showed up and they were like, ah, because they weren't communicating and they weren't together and they weren't united. And I look at that today and I was like, man, we're ripe for the same kind of divvying up. Oh, we're living it. Thoughts and prayers, y'all. What do you think, Dr. Perry? Um, you know, I think this is a, a really important line of questioning because there doesn't have to be a conspiracy theory for us to be wary um, of the racism in medicine. And it works more than one way. So on the one hand, there is a tendency for physicians and various medical professionals to give us a lower standard of care, right? Which is, so you could say, for example, with the vaccine, there are, there's also information about warning signs. There's information about how, you know, what protocols are, should be in place that given the inequality in medicine, it is likely that we will be less well-served in the implementation. And then on the other hand, there is the, we have information about how physicians don't order tests as often um, as they should for us or less likely to provide a high standard of care. So in a certain sense, the baked in, we've already seen the just ways in which discri- racial discrimination are baked in and it impacts our care. And so even if we don't have a conspiracy theory with the implementation, we still need to be thinking about Um, being prepared to be attentive to the implementation and to be organized around making sure that it's done with Black communities in an ethical and decent fashion. And I love that analogy to the Berlin conference. I, I, I was once walking down the street in Berlin and I saw this placard that described that event, um, 
on the street, which was sort of extraordinary because I was like, do we have any like signs that are just on city streets about the horrific racism, unless we fought for them or horrific racist incidents in our, our cities, but it was just it, it sort of kind of matter of fact, but those concerns about how much our community's interests, our worries, our care, our well-being are appropriate and we have to organize ourselves in this moment with respect to the pandemic, but also with respect to responding to the pandemic in ways that share, where we share information, um, we, we are advocating for how, how the rollout happens, making sure that members of our community who most need the vaccine are getting it, talking to people about how to think about the vaccine, all of that. Hmm. Are you, are you passing it? Can I have it? Can I have the ball now? Yeah. Well, All right. If you hear my, if you don't see my lips moving, you better jump like, in. Wait. Don't let Smith send me that, that meme of Homer Simpson faded into the grass. Uh, so Dr. Perry, I, I just, I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you about this and I thank you for laying all of that out. But I, I guess my, my question would be, what does organizing around the rollout look like? So for the average Sirius XM listener, they are, you know, uh, doing relatively well in comparison, I think, to many in the country on average, not always, um, hardworking, involved in a lot of things already. The idea of organizing around another issue, I know can sometimes feel like such a burden to people, but what would an effective organizing around the rollout for the vaccine look like under the, the framework that you just laid out? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I will answer, but I'll also say I'm not an organizer. And so I have the kind of humility to understand the things that I don't know how to do as well as there are <laughs> I do think we have been organizing around medical issues for a long time. And I think this falls under that umbrella and it can be rather small things. Like, I mean, I don't know how much we share information just internal to communities about those of us who know in detail about COVID and about the vaccine trials. And it's hard to get like just sharing that basic information. And it, we hear the word all the time but it, and we see the news reports, but it's actually hard to get detailed, like practical step-by-step -step information. It just is. And so like, to the extent that, you know, and now people aren't out in the same way. So it, a lot of it has to happen digitally, but I do think that that's, it's just meaningful to share information and also to share which medical experts we ought to be following, right? So like the Blackstock sisters on Twitter, for example, they give a lot of really meaningful information to people that, that is directly connected to our communities, right? Sharing that those who is a reliable person to listen to is even important. You know, I'm remembering when we used to go into buildings um, in the before times, um, when I would go to church, you know, testimony service. That's one way that not only are you sharing what happened to you personally, but you can also be informing the community about other things that are also a blessing to you. And it makes me think that I wonder if, you know, even in Black radio and in Black talk spaces, should we have a, a COVID survivor of the week where someone is able to talk about their experiences and you can sort of follow them throughout the month or throughout several months and I'm going to write that idea down. That's an idea. Um, but I, I just feel like there has to be, you know, when it, you think about the way information moved on plantations or when we were in the plantation era through the fishnets, through the, the rumor mill, through the ability to pass information from mouth to mouth. And that is, a, I, I think, a cultural retention that we still have. And I wonder if we should be making more space for that. In addition to highlighting those doctors, highlighting the people who are going through this experience and, and what their struggles are and what it would have meant for them to choose to do things differently if they could have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I think um, Dr. Perry is here. Of course, Dr. Imani Perry, Marie Daniel Favors, Afro State of Mind Center for Law and Social Justice at Mega Rivers College. Um, that trust thing, that trust thing, I think, who do we trust? And I think this is where we are. We're in an era of, first of all, ignorance, but also a lack of trust. And the people who have engendered trust, not not that they're always trustworthy. So we've had 40, 50 years of institutions, you know, with letters, you know, they're, they're letters, acronyms for different things that we trusted. And then we haven't seen results. So now we go from, we trust, we donate, we are invested. And then overnight, they all are trash. <laughs> they're out for themselves. They're boule. They're, the, you know, so you have these, these institutions that didn't engender trust in the last few years, maybe decade or so. And now we don't have a place to turn because we used to be able to turn to the church. And now there's so many pastors that are not trustworthy. There's so many churches that are out for uh, profit and, and, and it makes like everybody. Now there's some good ones, but because of the institutions now have these, these blemishes, who, who do you trust? So now folks go down these rabbit holes on social media, on YouTube, on Reddit, and we see it both with the Trump people. We we're talking about the same kind of energy with folks that follow Trump. They're only going to believe if it comes from this network or from Trump's mouth. They're only going to believe it if it comes from this source. That's questionable, you know. And now people who have actually done the research, I don't trust you because you're you have a Ph.D. What? You, you, you have a, a medical degree. You think you're better than me. So I'm not going to. It's so weird. And I think that's a hard thing because it, it is true that oftentimes folks who are quote unquote experts are very condescending and don't treat others with the kind of respect that is engenders, engenders trust, right? Um, but I say on the other hand, as someone who has lived with chronic diseases for most of my life, I have lupus, I have Graves' disease and various other things, that one of the ways I managed that because I have my, had my own experiences with being dismissed or with being condescended to or with having physicians not listen to me is I always take my healthcare in my own hands. And I don't mean that I just sort of read indiscriminately. I mean that I try to read medical research. I ask for multiple opinions from multiple doctors. Like I try to find sources that are experts, but not just one right? And try to cross-reference information as a way of taking care of myself. And I think that that's really, I think, you know, it's the combination of expertise, but also feeling like you have some control for yourself over what you're taking in and knowing that you, so it's not just, and I also think it, it, it comes from, trust shouldn't just come from the position someone has, right? It comes from the, their track record, right? And how they have shown themselves to be in relationship to various communities over, over a career, right? So I'm not gonna, you know, I, I've been mistreated by plenty of doctors who I would never trust, but I also have doctors who I have seen what they research, what they, way they interact with me, what they, how they talk, how they communicate information clearly. That is part of how the trust develops. You know, and I can, and you can see even on social media, there are ways that different physicians move, right? The way they talk to people, the way they, you know, it varies. And I think, so we have to apply that discernment even for the quote unquote experts. When it comes to advocating for yourself, particularly in the medical community, and, and I'm asking this because you, you just offered up your own personal experience. And so I'm, I'm always curious, I get an opinion from Dr. A. 
I, I kind of trust it, but mm, I just, something's not right in my spirit and I feel like I need something else. How do I go about getting that second opinion? Do I tell Dr. A, hey, I, I, I've questioned this, so I'm going to go see, I'm going to cheat on you and go behind your back and get another doctor. And I mean, even framing it that way as if we are owing, we owe some allegiance to a particular doctor is a wrong frame. But how do you go about just mechanically? What are the mechanics of doing that? really is arduous because especially once you're talking about um, specialists, you might have to wait several months before you get the second opinion, right? Um, or the third opinion. Um, and it, and you know, if you have a demanding schedule, demanding life that has adds more constraints and depending upon your insurance, it might be hard to do. So I don't mean to say that it's easy, but I, I guess for me, it's like, it's sort of this question, nobody is going to value your life as much as you do. Mm. And so, so I do think sort of going through that effort, especially, for example, I'll talk about my thyroid since I brought up, but like, you know, I've been, I've had the recommendation, have it removed. And I say, well, I'm on medication now. If I haven't removed, I'll definitely be on medication for the rest of my life. So why am I going to go through the surgery? Right. So just asking more questions like, well, what happens afterwards? Right. And then, so in the, so it's both with the first doctor and then I talk to other doctors months later, right? And it's been a multi-year process, but um, so yeah. And I don't think we don't owe, I mean, sometimes doctors will act that way, but we don't, we don't owe loyalty. Right. To they provide care. Mm, yeah. right. Which mm. came first, 866-801-8255. We're talking with Dr. Imani Perry and Lorie Daniel Favors is here as well, Afro State of Mind, as Wellness Wednesday. Which came first, the Graves disease or the lupus? Because I, I was reading somewhere that autoimmune both are autoimmune that they come like in groups. So like I, I've had suffered from eczema, eczema, then discoid lupus, then it's, you know, and yeah. if you, you know, so which, yeah. <laughs> and the lupus was first, I think, you know, I mean, that's the other thing too. So often you don't know when diseases really on- onset unless they've been tested for them. Right. So you, and, and I think this is particularly true for, Black women and Black people generally, because we so often live with um, sort of pushing pushing through state of like discomfort, malaise, pain, what have you, oftentimes we don't know when things start, you know? So um, the lupus, I was diagnosed with though much younger. I was 20, 22 years old. What symptoms did you have? Well, how did you know? Um, arthritis, the butterfly rash, uh, uh, fatigue. I mean, I basically had all of the symptoms at once, which is why my diagnosis was quick. It was just within a couple of, of weeks, which maybe two months, and, you know, many people it's years before they get the diagnosis, but I had a rapid onset and I had a strong family history of it. Um, so, yeah. And yet here you are with all of these things, writing books and doing all of this. So, you know, and, and we start off the show talking about, you know, imagining your life, no matter what your hardships, imagining, you know, where you want to be, not your condition, because it's all temporary, light and momentary is what we're here, you know, but that you get up every day and you not just do your thing, but you teach as well, which I think is a service that we don't put enough uh, love and energy into. So thank you for that. But talk about getting up every day. Oh, gosh, you know, I think it's hard for everybody now, including me. Um, I think the the impact of this sort of isolation and fear and 
um, how to manage our, ourselves and the loneliness and the disconnection from families is much greater than we're giving it credit for right now. I think that we're enduring a great deal and people are being stretched very thin. Um, and so getting up requires, for me, it requires acknowledging all of that. I, I, I don't just move past the circle. So I have tasks that I wanna complete. I have you know people I wanna talk to. I have things that I wanna work on, but I also try to give myself some care and sensitivity. And I also try to display it to other people. Like one of the things I was talking to someone this morning about um, all the email conflict that's happening now that I'm, I'm witnessing, right? Because everybody is kind of miserable, right? And so, you know, I said, so I snap at somebody and then they snap back and we both have a grievance when in reality, neither of us is really mad at each at the other one, right? We're mad about life right now. Um, and I think sort of that kind of grace um, is part of sort of getting me through the, the day, grace with myself, grace with others, is getting me through each day. Um, and keeping in mind, you know, um, gratitude, like to have, I mean, I, I, and I mean that not like I'm not telling myself to be grateful. Like I am really grateful. I mean, there's a lot of suffering happening now. And I am deeply grateful that I have a roof over my head and I can take care of my children and we have not been sick thus far. Um, and I, so I think that's also really important to, to hold on to the things to be grateful for. My family has, has been fine and that is not the case for, you know, thousands upon thousands of, of members of our community. Yeah, absolutely. Ashe and, and gratitude seems to be a recurring theme over the past couple of weeks. And I, I wanna shift gears just a little bit because you are, um, in addition to doing wonderful things in preserving your body and your health, you're brilliant um, and a phenomenal scholar. And, and so I wanna make sure that we um, don't, don't give short shrift to that. And, and as someone who I, I actually was an Africana studies major when I was in college years and years and years ago. And so I'm always so happy and, and appreciative, grateful, uh, if you will, to see black scholars who have chosen to, to double down on study of us um, and, and what that means and what they're able to do with that scholarship. and. The Black studies um, space, ethnic studies in general, have been under such attack from this administration. And you know, I know how much it benefited me. I know how much my studies have informed the type of attorney that I am today. Um, but I guess as someone who is, who is working in this space and who is teaching in this space, what is it that you want for the ethnic studies or the Black studies community going forward? What is it that you would like to see Black studies scholarship producing in the years to come? Because we are going to be shifting gears in many, many ways, and yet that, that scholarly space is still going to need to be defended and shored up and upheld. And so I'm just curious as to what, in your ideal world, what would that, what would that area of scholarship be producing? Yeah, well, I would say one of the principal areas of concern for me personally, but also just as a field generally, I think um, is about preservation. Mm. So one of the things we often hear is about, you know, what the records we don't have, the archive we don't have, the things that, but there is so much information about our histories out there that have, has not been written in a way that is, is accessible to to our communities or hasn't been collected, right? So there's a lot of really precious things in 
in, you know, people's basements and attics. And so we have to think very seriously about how these institutions can be, especially those institutions that are well-resourced um, because there's just very, there's a wide gap in terms of, and, you know, so there's on the one hand, there's all these black studies programs that are closing. And then on the other, there are these institutions where, where they're getting money, right? And they're growing, right? There's a gap. And so those institutions that are growing and have resources have a responsibility to the field at large to do the work of preserving things for all of us, for the, for the whole field. Um, yeah, so. Do you, so I, I went to a PWI. Yes. Um, and at the time, there were only a handful of HBCUs that were even offering classes in Black Studies. I'm, I'm dating myself now. Um, what responsibility do you think Black institutions have, HBCUs in particular, for taking up an active role in that preservation and in furthering that area of study? Yeah, so that's a great, that's a great um, sort of comment and point. And um, I'll just give an example of work, some work that I'm working on. I'm working with a um, a professor of education, Jarvis Givens at Harvard, and we have this um, project where we've gotten funding to collect the journals that black teachers organizations produced um, basically over from the very early 20th century, sometimes late 19th century, all the way through the 1970s. And they, these organizations, they met regularly, they had a national satellite organization and they produced monthly journals, both at the state level and national level. I mean, and I would I would guess that except for scholars of black education, very few um, African-American study scholars even know this, but there are many of these journals are at HBCU libraries, but they don't have the money to process the journals and to digitize the journal. So we're trying to figure out how to make meaningful partnerships so that these institutions can have work done at, and they still own the documents because it's important because they have been the institutions that have preserved them for all these years. Um, but also because we want access to that and <laughs> those that, that data too, you know, it's like this kind of partnership win-win. Um, so I think, you know, the resource question is, is, is real serious with respect to, with respect to this. It also, the, there's an issue around boards because the boards of elite PWIs and the boards of HBCUs come from the same demographics and have the same um, absences frequently in terms of being concerned about our histories <laughs> and preserving them. And so that also is why student activism becomes so important, yes. right? Because they are the ones who always hope, you know, I could talk until I'm blue in the face, but it's when our students, you know, start rate that's when everybody pays attention because that's they are the they are indispensable for all these institutions right so yeah. I tell my colleagues at Hunter we're not here but for the students so we must treat them like the goal that they are meaning well you know I, I hate professors that treat students poorly as if you know somehow you're position and in, in, in salary is not tied to that young person in your classroom how dare you disrespect them I oof. anyway uh, we're talking with Professor Imani Perry. Who is Hughes Rogers? Who is that? <laughs> uh, I 
don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she said, Hughes Rogers, but I was like, is this a black person? I, I don't think that person probably is. Because as you mentioned, even Spellman, there was this big brouhaha this week on Twitter because a white girl got accepted to Spellman. Like, they're not white people at Morehouse and Howard and Hampton and all. I mean, they, white people go to HBCUs where they get, you know, the same benefits we get at going to white schools. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, but most of those schools are named after white people. Like, Spellman's named after, uh, what is it, Rockefeller's wife? Laura Spellman. Yeah. So anyway, um, I, I wanted to ask, go back to, to going to Germany because Laurie was actually raised a, a bit part in, in Germany. Her, her dad was in the military um, and that they have a plaque <laughs> I, that that floors me because what you said actually is, I think, why we're in this condition right now as Americans, that we do not celebrate truth, history from a very, you know, uh, you know, everything's George Washington chopped down a cherry tree. He didn't tell any lies. And, uh, you know, all of this, Thomas Jefferson, you know, we don't tell the truth in this country about our history. Columbus discovered America. Uh, tell me about that plaque and what it said about that conference. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it described, I mean, let me say this. I would like for it to, I, I think it would have been even better were it a more substantial memorial, right? Because the consequence of that, of the, those deeds are just, I mean, just so much death, so much oppression, so much suffering, right? But um, just describing who was in the meeting, who wasn't, um, you know, how how they divided up Africa, right? Because it's it's so, abs- I mean, it happened. And when you, th- you just read it, plain, like, this is absurd, right? You just think you can take, oh, you know, take over an, a continent. And similarly, um, at several of the museums I went to, where they had artifacts from other parts of the world, there were descriptions like, you know, this nation says that this is still theirs and they would like it returned, right? Now it should be returned, but also the acknowledgement that, <laughs> that, that it was, you know, a consequence of theft and pillage is a step beyond where we are. Um, and so I feel like that's a direction. It's not the end, right? They still are, are subject to a lot of critique, not the least of which is they don't count racial disparities in Germany. So you don't know how unequal it is because they don't count that information. They don't track race and, uh, and the like. But I, it, it was a lesson for me about how mm. something better. The larger lesson of a continent of a billion plus people being divvied up by a small group of people way across the water in a room at a conference. What lesson can we glean from that today? And how do we start to, because Laurie and I spend a great deal of time both on mic and off mic talking about building the world we want to live in and what that looks like for black people, because foundationally that's where we have to start. You know, we can bitch and complain about politics and all these other things, but we all live someplace. And if we can shore up our communities, which we've done since we, you know, been here in bondage and out of bondage, we know how to build, um, but build around what other people might do, I think has to be part of the equation because they didn't know those Africans, those, and I don't even know if we should call them that those folks living on that continent, that biggest continent the biggest landmass in the world period by far five times bigger than what we are used to seeing it on maps um had no clue that they what was about to happen to them to us how how do we build with that knowledge that somebody right now is in a room somewhere making a decision about what's going to happen to the flint water you know somebody was in a room and made a decision about what's going to happen in newark 
you know, how do we build around that? I mean, I think, you know, I always think of Ida B. Wells quote, the people must know before they can act. And mm -hmm. so I do think that um, committing, you know, and, and oftentimes you go, you know, I know we've all been at forums and people will, at the forum will say, um, there's all this talking and we need action. But the reality is that we still have a lot of knowledge to acquire. Yes. Right. And, and that's both present and historic, right? Like, I, I mean, you know, the relationship between the transatlantic slave trade and colonialism and then cycles of migrant labor of people of African descent, those, those need to be, I mean, I, I think it would be so meaningful if we gave ourselves and our young people a comprehensive history of that from very early. Because I think one, it would help us see each other from our different parts of the world and our different ethnic identities with greater care and clarity. But it would also make us understand how power works, right? There's, these things keep being replicated, right? Like, so when people talk about being, you know, the, the undocumented and you, it is useful to think about how black Americans were undocumented for generations, right? That is literally what slavery did. It kept you from being considered someone worthy of documentation, even though you could you labored constantly, right? So mm -hmm. to un I think we get a deeper understanding of sort of what positions to take, um, what injustices are likely to be replicated if we, if we have this sort of, ability to see our histories as interconnected. Um, and certainly uh, at present. So for example, I'll say for, you know, when we talk about defund the police, right, which as a position I hold, but a lot of people say, well, defund the police and fund the schools. And my immediate thing is, well, how, right? Because there's a lot of school funding that goes into schools that is done in unethical ways that, that, that lead black children to suffer, right? So we, you know, so the question, so you can't just sort of the question can't just be addressing one issues. You know, you have to understand the relationship between between the issues, and even how funding is not a be all end all. Because there are schools with black children overwhelmingly that are well funded, but that the in which the children don't really see the funding. Because if you have a large, for example, large number of special education students in classes, the school gets more funding, but the kids might not actually have many more resources. Right, so. It's like getting into the details, uh, understanding how things work, understanding policy um, for me is, is the best way I can answer that. Dr. Amani Perry is here. Afro State of Mind, Laurie Daniel Favors is here as well. Um, you, man, you dropped so much. I brought you on to talk about um, <laughs> Lorraine Hansberry. <laughs> that's, that's, I brought you on. So we're going to have to have, we, you got to come back because there's just so many, you know, I, I feel like, you know, not that Lorraine Hansberry is a hidden figure, but I think there's just so much about people we don't know, which speaks to that clip, which speaks to what you were just saying. Um, and the Ida B. Wells quote ran through me because I've been, you know, I have Ida B. Wells is like, you know, just, my, the, I stand on her shoulders when I think about being a journalist. That's who I think about. And so, yeah, this is the journey, right? This is the mission to get people to know. So hard. One of the things that 
you raised for me, Dr. Perry, and Karen, that that clip also raised is something that, that we sort of keep coming back to in this conversation about the role of history and having a historical analysis for your current reality. And again, for me, that's the Sankofa model of analysis, right? Like how did what happened this morning, yesterday, five years ago, 500 years ago, how did that impact the person that I am today and the people that we are today? And when you said the people must know before they can, I almost yelped. Uh, I think I actually did make an audible noise <laughs> because it just, it hits me that, you know, when you are in those spaces and people are like, I'm tired of talking, it's time for action. Well, you're, you're, you can act, but you're going to be acting on a, a scintilla of the information that is available to you. And so all of your acts are going to be ill-informed. And it is particularly, um, frustrating to be a people who have oral histories built into our, our sort of ancestral DNA to have been excluded and prevented from preserving our history. So for this sort of 500 year period from preserving it in a way that would have most centered our needs to now have to make decisions and, and, and decide how we're going to organize based on whatever access to information we got from the local American school system. And it just, it, it really speaks to me about the importance of centering history. I, I math important, science important, but if you don't have a historically grounded analysis for who, your peoplehood, for your personhood, you are, you are walking around blind, unable to hear, unable to speak, unable to have any sensory ability to determine your destiny. And I'm just, I'm just struck by that. And I, you know, that, yeah, I, I'm just struck by that. Nothing to say there because you are. Uh, so where do we start, right? Um, you know, I know Laurie and I have been talking about education being core. You know, we had Erica Buddington on. I'm always having educators on. Uh, Keisha Porcher, you know, we like, we, we're constantly, you know, Heather I have on, you know, uh, the, the the great teacher from, from Newark um, uh, who, who brought washing machines in. Something as simple as, you know, making sure kids have clean clothes, going back to Viola Davis, you know, and, and the insecurity and the shame of coming to school dirty, no fault of your own, just because of poverty to make sure that they can wash their clothes means everything, right? So like we're dealing with not just a knowledge gap or, or a lack of knowledge, but that sense of self, self-worth and all of that comes into opening up people's minds to learn more. As a, as a professor at Princeton, what, what's the entry point to unlock for, for your students? Because most of your students do not look like you, right? I imagine. A lot of Princeton. my my students who take my classes look like me. <laughs> okay, okay. That's your your class probably full too. Uh, but I'm imagine Princeton is predominantly white, so um, and this should be mandatory for the white kids to take your class. I just think that that should be mandatory for all freshmen coming in, all sophomores, whatever level you teach, um, that they must take a, a African studies class or two or three. Um, what's the entry point that cracks it for 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 a lot of your students where they go? Oh. I need to go down this rabbit hole. So it, yeah, it varies, but I'll tell you, there was the one thing that consistently does that. Um, and it, you know, it depends what class, what time period, but is when I teach students the history of 20th century federal policy around um, sort of the GI bill and access the federal um, uh Federal Housing Administration keeping Black people from becoming homeowners. 
and also the legal history of racially restrictive covenants keeping black people from purchasing homes in white neighborhoods. And the reason I think that that's like the aha moment is that even the most um, kind of, the proudest black students often don't know why we are so poor related, relative to the rest of the country. And when that becomes clear, it just, for some reason, it frees people up to be like, oh, like I can throw away all of this fiction about black people being deficient or black people don't save or black people. And because you see, and it's not just in this, it wasn't just in the South and it wasn't just at the state, that the very deliberate choice to exclude us from the benefits of the nation. And that wasn't slavery, that was the 20th century. And you didn't even begin to get remediation of it until the late 1960s. And then almost you know, less than uh, 15 years after that, you have the Reagan revolution, which is taking all of it back, right? So this sort of, you know, how do we get here? Nobody's supposed to be here becomes very clear. And for some reason that just kind of, you know, um, it, it's a really powerful entry point um, for many of them. Actually, no matter what class it is, that just that information makes students feel a sense of relief. And it's not just black students. Yeah, because I can imagine. All of them feel like, oh, so I can let go of this sort of set of assumptions about black people. Um, As we look at Marsha Fudge now, who will be the head of confirmed, the head of HUD, uh, a black woman, the first ever. You imagine housing, public housing, first ever black woman, since they always put us in, you know, we all welfare, we're in the projects. This is the first black woman that uh, ever, uh, she actually was under President Jimmy Carter. She was the first uh, as well to, was it uh, agriculture? Was she, no, she was, uh, she was the advocate for fair labor practices, civil and human rights. And she had been a top contender for that position under Carter. Didn't make it, but she made it here. So. She serves on the House Committee on Agriculture as well. So this is going to be interesting, this Biden-Harris uh, administration. Can we take some calls? Let's, yeah, because I was about two. to dive okay. into that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Lorraine. I was going to take us a whole other direction. We, we need to get okay. to we can get All right. Let's, <laughs> let's go to D in St. Louis. D in St. Louis, you're on with Dr. Perry. Lorraine Daniel Favors is here as well. Welcome. Hi, Karen. You were talking about history, and one of the things that hurt me to my core when I was 30 years old, I found out about my distant uncle who fought in World War One in a French uniform because America didn't want black men fighting in American uniforms in World War One and got injured with mustard gas because they weren't given the equipment. And I thought to myself, why does it take why does it take me till I'm 30 years old to find this out? It's because there's a lot of stuff even our families either don't want to talk about or, you know, we repress. There's a lot of stuff that we lose through either the Great Migration, where we left family members behind who knew stories, or it's just too painful for us to talk about. So we just put it behind us. Thanks for sharing that, Dr. Dr. Perry. Yeah, I appreciate um, you you sharing that. And I, I would add, I, you know, I think that this is a really important observation about also talking to our elders and the, the wounds so many of them carry and how hard it is to talk about certain histories and, um, and being 
careful and tender with with that. I went, you know, I used to be up under my grandmother all the time before she passed. And I, I learned that if I asked her direct questions, she would clamp up. But if I could get her at night and, you know, just start talking, you know, like, oh, what was, you know, what was the yard like? Like you kind of ease your way into it in this whole sort of life world that she wouldn't just share all, just like, you know, she, she didn't sort of like sit around and tell the story of her life all the time, but it would be eased out of her. And I do think that's really, it's really valuable. Black history is as important for the people in our families who we think of as just ordinary folks, it's as important to learn through them as, you know, the great figure history. Um, and that's just a, a, a perfect example of it. And part of the normalization of black pain is that we often experience things that we may not even necessarily name as, a, as an injury, right? We may not even name it or recognize it as something that happened to us that doesn't happen to any other group of people. And we even see that with our young people when you're in a classroom with young students and you're with black students and you're asking them how many of y'all have had to assume the position and all of them raise their hand and then you let them know that there are entire other communities of young people who have never had that experience. And, but because it's the, the trauma of that and the injustice of that is so normalized, every adult in their community has been through it. It may not even be recognized as a harm um, beyond just what you already experience in a day that has a lot of suffering sort of baked into it. So being able to come around your back to scratch your elbow in conversation with the elders can be a really powerful way of finding out, yeah, you're going to find out about that yard, but you're also going to find out what they did with the chickens in the yard and how the chickens were related to so-and-so's rooster. And did you know that when so-and-so brought the rooster that they faced the clan mark? You know, so you'll hear all this other information that if you said, well, what was your experience with the clan? you would never get, you would just never get. Well, you know, we were raised, my mother was raised in an era where children are to be seen and not heard. You, you didn't get into grown folks business. We were conditioned to not talk our business outside of the house. You know, like there was a generation, you know, that 70 and above that sharing that pain, that trauma was unheard of. And as a matter of fact, you, you almost felt like, I guess that you didn't want to pass that along. So I'll ask my mother something. And she said, I don't know. I could, I said, you didn't ask your mother, girl, if I asked my mother, you, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? You get a backhand asking questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, let's, uh, let's go to Al in the Bronx. Welcome to the Karen Hunter show. Yes. Good afternoon. I enjoy your show. Um, it's very in informing information. I used to attend many years ago. I'm in my 80s now. But I used to go to uh, uh, the Patricia Lamoma Coalition in Harlem at Harry Government School, where I met Dr. Ben, Dr. Clark, Ivan Van Sudderman, Tony Martin, uh, Amos Wilson, many guys, many scholars. I never really turned my life around that today, even my son now, he has a PhD in, in, from Temple in African American Studies, and he's at the university. But I like what you all are doing because it changes when you learn about yourself, it changes your life. I've helped a lot of people. I'm still right now. I got my grandson with me. And, um, and you have to have that, that foundation. You got to know who you are, the history of your people. And I've been doing this all for my family time. I was a kid. I always was this kind of way. And um, it's not easy, but it makes you a better person and I make you feel good about yourself, and, um, you know, and good things happen. You know, it's hard at times, but good things eventually happen. Well, thank you for sharing that, Al. 
you're 80 years old. God bless you, too. I mean, shoot. <laughs> like, he was around the 1940s. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, we got to put that in perspective, right? What was happening in the country in the 1950s and 40s? This man lived through it, you know? And there's stories there, like like Dr. Perry was saying, and we have to ask the questions, even uh, especially of our elders, because those stories will die with them. And that that's everlasting life to me. You know, those stories, those skills that we get from the previous generation is why we keep getting interrupted, why we can't be our great, happy black selves, because we keep getting interrupted. It's time to put those threads back together, sew that tapestry, and make sure that we continue uh, being who we need to be. Mm-hmm. All right, ladies, we got Can a I minute left. One more question? I know we yes. got to run. Can I think one more question? Okay. In light of the need to preserve this history and speaking more importantly uh, about the elders we have with us, what are some of the key questions that we should be asking our elders with our cell phones out, with the the camera up, like do it on a Zoom. You know, my grandmother passed on on January 1st of this year. So I, I, there's so many times I hear in my voice, I'm like, damn, I wish I had recorded you saying that. What are some of those key questions that we should be asking of of our elders, of, of, you know, whether we're related to them or just the elders in our community so we can get a better sense as to the histories that matter? I mean, you know, I think there's so many ways to answer this, but I would say some of my favorite questions are what was the happiest moment of your childhood? Um, Who was your favorite teacher? Um, You know, what was the hardest chore you had to do? Just because they, those turn into stories, you know, Um, and, and things about like, what did you learn about, especially, this is especially true of elder women, but like, what can you share knowledge about, about children, right? because that becomes another way that people here, you know, um, uh, will share stories. But I think also just valuing them. And we, I'm I'm almost 50 um, and I will say that I feel like members of my generation have have not always been good about ensuring that our young value elders who are older than us and how important it is to learn from them. And I think that that is an essential lesson, right? If you are, if you have a kid who is in the house or even on the block with a grandparent or just an elder beloved person, it is so important to tell them to listen, listen, listen all the time. On that note, uh, you have to come back. And uh, Laurie was shocked when you said you're almost 50 because you look like you're in your 30s. But that's the black, good black, dull crack. I love it. Dr. Imani Perry, please come back. <laughs> 